So one of my favorite TV shows of all time is The West Wing. It's kind of the ins and the outs of the nerve center of the White House, the relationships, the policy, the, the public things, the private things, the relationships, the victories, and all those things. The, the writing on the show is stunning. The acting is, is consistently strong. And after watching all seven seasons, I think at least three times, I can make a case for any of the cast to be my favorite character. Uh, you know, there's Josh and Toby and President Bartlett and Leo and Sam and Donna, but I keep coming back to C.J. Craig. He plays the White House press secretary. C.J. is the spokesman for the president, for the administration, and by extension, for the United States in the world. And I like that because it, it tracks so closely with the way it works in real life. That job, being the White House spokesperson, uh, requires a wide-ranging awareness of issues in the world, a, a sharp intellect, incisive communication skills, and, and awareness of the sober responsibility that goes with the role. Because you see, those spokesmen don't just craft words. They have to anticipate the impact of those words, both positively and negatively. Say the right thing the right way, all is well. Say the wrong thing or the right thing the wrong way or in a confusing way, then the president and the nation are misrepresented and chaos could ensue domestically, internationally, politically, economically. To serve as a spokesperson for a person of world-shaping influence carries deep responsibility that is both a burden and an opportunity to be a part of making a real difference. And because of that position, it's really crucial to pay attention to it and what's being said. You and I encounter spokesmen for people of influence in a variety of spheres of our life most of the time. Uh, our political candidates have communications directors that craft all the messages that we get during election seasons like this. There are media relations directors at universities, even our own Jay Slux, one of our, uh, one of our elders, is the, is the media uh, relations director for WKU. Uh, the press representatives for entertainers tell you when the tour is going to be and where to get tickets. The administrative assistants for high-level C-suite executives are the gatekeepers who will either get you in or not to have an appointment with that, with that person. Even social media managers for celebrities are, in a sense, helping communicate. In every case, that person is speaking for another person and is responsible to represent them accurately. So their message is communicated, their authority is affirmed, their reputation is maintained. Now, now having a spokesman or somebody is not a new thing. We can go back through history and find generals or prime ministers who spoke for kings or patrons who spoke for artists. And even in the Bible, there's a whole category of people called prophets. Now, we tend to think of prophets as people who foretell future events. And sometimes that true, that's true. But most of the prophets we find in the Bible are, are instead telling forth the word of God to particular people in a particular moment. God has a message for people, a truth, a, a reprimand, a promise, a word of judgment, a reminder of his love, and so on. And so he prompts a prophet who comes, and the prophet says, thus says the Lord, the prophet, is a spokesman for God. Now, some prophets have entire books in the Bible dedicated to their message. Other prophets are in other parts of the scripture kind of woven into the narrative. Remember what we said. 
To serve as a spokesman for a person of world-shaping influence carries deep responsibility that can be a burden or it can be an opportunity to be a part of making real difference. So just imagine, okay, if you're the spokesperson for the king of the universe who created, upholds, and sustains everything we call reality with just the word of his power, if you're a spokesman bringing a message from that king it seems to be very, very important to get it right and very important that we hear what is being said. And that's what we want to talk about today. If God, the king of everything, is sending a message from the throne of heaven to the people of earth, that's us, and then what is it and how do we respond? We spent this year thinking about the kingdom of God, the active rule and reign of God over all things for his good and uh, for our good and for his glory. This fall, we've been walking through the book of Acts, looking at the people of the kingdom. Acts is one of two books written by, uh, by Luke in the New Testament. There's the gospel of Luke, which records the life and ministry of Jesus on the earth. And then his second volume is the book of Acts, is the life and ministry of Jesus on the earth continued through his people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the people of the kingdom. So Acts begins with Christ's ascension and then his coming to empower by the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches, 3,000 people enter a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A church is formed. And last week we looked at how that church's life and its blessings and one of those blessings was living in awe of God's supernatural power coming in and through signs and wonders performed by the apostles. Acts chapter 3 records one of those. That's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Acts chapter 3. And here's the situation. Peter and John are going to the temple as they normally did at the settled hours of prayer. They're going at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As they're walking in, they pass by the guy who was there every day, a man who was begging for money to sustain his life. The Bible tells us he had never, ever walked. He was just placed there every day to beg. Peter looks at him and he says, I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have you, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Takes him by the hand, lifts the man up, and not only does he stand up, he stands up takes a few steps, begins to run, and then walk, and then leap and jump, and he's praising God with a loud voice, and, and word begins to spread, because everybody knew who this guy was, because he was there every day. And they're astonished at the miracle they're seeing, and the crowd gathers, and Peter, well, he sees an opportunity. Because these miracles and signs were designed to point to Jesus. And so he tells them, it's by the power of the risen Jesus Christ, this man was healed. Oh, by the way, the same Jesus that most of you a few weeks ago were in a crowd screaming that he'd be crucified, he's really alive and he's working. This is what's going on. And then he flips and he's going to drive home the message in a way that that crowd of Jews could understand. So Kennedy's going to come and read for us. If you stand in honor of the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 3, we're going to begin in the middle of Peter's message here, Acts 3, beginning at verse 17. Let's hear the Lord's word. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for for you, a prophet like me, from your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord, which stands forever. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Thank you, Kennedy. You did a great job. So Peter does not really mince words here. He's saying you acted in ignorance when you did what you did and you killed Jesus. But he's, what he's saying ignorance is not that they were stupid. What he's saying is that for all your religious studies and all your traditions and all your rituals, you've missed what God's been doing and saying for centuries. He traces back through a series of spokesmen in Jewish history. There's Abraham and there's Moses and Samuel and the prophets. And then and now it's the exact same message because God only has one message for us. And God's one message is this, trust me alone and live. Trust me alone and live. Now, why is that God's message? Because humanity, everyone who's ever lived, was created to know and love and obey and enjoy God. But every single person who's ever lived has rejected God's love and rebelled against him as king and decided to go our own way. Because of that, life was shattered on earth and marked by pain now and an eternity forever because that relationship with our creator was broken and taken away. There's no prospects for life or for blessing, but ultimately the story is not a good one. God's mercy and love, even in the midst of that, however, prompted him and stirred him to initiate a rescue plan based on this message. Trust me alone and live. And he consistently sent his prophets to make it clear. And in this passage, he centers on one of them, that this message was promised through Moses, the deliverer of Israel. Now in verse 22, it says Moses speaks, he's quoting there a verse in Deuteronomy when he says, uh, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. A prophet like me. Well, what was he, Moses? What was he like? You may remember his story. Son of Hebrew slaves, raised in Egyptian royalty after a long exile, called by God to be the liberation, lead the liberation movement of the Hebrew slaves. Now, why? Well, for 400 years, for four centuries, the people of Israel, the Hebrew slaves, had been held under slavery by the single most powerful world power of that day, by the power of Egypt. Egypt. 
They were not really treated as people. They were really treated as tools, as beasts of burden, just to get things done, to sustain the economy, all the things that Egypt wanted to do. There was no purpose in it, just slogging through day by day under pain and being treated horribly in that way. God heard that and decided to send Moses to liberate them because it was through this people, this Israel, that God's rescue and his rescuers was going to come. So what marks this Moses? Well, he was a, a man of deep humility who had an intimate relationship with God. He was the first to know God's personal name. I am who I am. And people saw the evidences of God's majesty and his wonder, and they were terrified. We're not going to go. You go talk to him. And Moses did. He went right up into the very presence of God and lingered there. And the Bible says he spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. He was allowed glimpses of this blinding glory of God, just a little bit of a glimpse, but he was so close to him that after times of prayer, he would walk out and his whole face would be aglow with a reflection of the glory of God. This intimacy was there. But Moses also spoke the word of God to the people of God. It was Moses who brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. It was Moses who gave the law that shaped the life of God's people, that showed them the sacrificial system that shaped their relationship to God, that, that gave them the design for the tabernacle that was to be at the center of their life together. And he never, ever shied away from saying to them the really hard things. He would say, whether it was a blessing or a hard thing, this is what the Lord your God is saying to you right now. But we also know that Moses was the one who led the deliverance that God accomplished that saved and liberated his people. He comes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, the Lord God says, let my people go that they can worship me. And Pharaoh said, I don't know who God is. Why would I do that? Why would I let him go? I'm not going to do that. And so God gave him another chance to reconsider. He gave them a chance to reconsider after every one of the plagues that came. You've heard the plagues of Moses. Every one of those plagues were ways of coming against and confronting the, the idols of Egypt. And they were horrible things that came on them little by little. They were uncomfortable. The water turned to blood. There were frogs. There were gnats. They were disruptive of their daily life. There was an attack on their identity, on their strength as a nation. They lost all their crops. They lost their livestock. Their physical things that came on them, boils on their bodies. But none of those things that affected the people of Egypt even touched God's people. Pharaoh was given nine opportunities to obey what God was saying, to repent. And when he stubbornly rejected all nine opportunities, God brought the threat of the final judgment, death for all the firstborn in Egypt. After he had delivered that word to Pharaoh, Moses had a word for God uh, to God's people. Deliverance is coming, but here's what you must do. You must slaughter an unblemished lamb. Catch the blood in a basin and then take something and, and paint that blood over the door frame of your house. And then that night, you must not go out of your house at all. And when the judging wrath of God passes through the land, he will see the blood and pass over the house. Death is coming, but salvation is available under the blood. As long as you stay under the blood this night, death will pass over. You will live and walk free. 
Now you hear the message of God. He's saying, trust me alone and you live. And what happened that night was there was a distinction between what was going on in the Hebrew homes and the Egyptian homes. In the Egyptian homes, there was death and there was grieving. In the Hebrew homes, there was the stunning reality that they, they were alive even after this had passed through. And Moses led them out that night. He continued to lead them all the way to the promised land. And here's what the Bible says about him. There's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. And for all the mighty power, all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It was years later that Moses said, God's going to send you another prophet like me. Like me. Now keep those things in mind. Because here's what we know about God's message and about the scriptures. It always points to Jesus. Moses was pointing ahead, picturing in advance the life and the ministry of Jesus. Moses was the shadow. Jesus is the substance but it's still the message of God, trust me alone and live. This message that was accomplished through Christ, the Savior of the world. How did he do that? He accomplished it because he fulfilled God's promises to us. Look back in, in verse 18, it says, What God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer. And the very next verse talks about that he will blot out sins in that way, right? He said he will suffer in that way. And then he says, then, then if you go on to verse 24 and 25, it says, and all the prophets have spoken from Samuel, those who come after him, he also proclaimed these days. So, so it's all kind of put together. In the Old Testament, we see God's promises made. In the New Testament, God's promises are kept. In the Old Testament, um, God, uh, Jesus is, uh, is in shadow, kind of grayscale. In the New Testament, we see Christ in high definition color. We see who he is. So throughout this passage, what Peter is doing is he is reminding the Jews of their history and their heritage. They were the people. God chose one guy, Abraham, and through his family that became a nation. They were the ones through whom God's redemptive plan was going to come. The blessing was going to come. Moses came to protect that nation from being destroyed. And then when Samuel and all the prophets that came after him, they said, there's a Messiah coming. There's a king coming who's going to come from you. He's going to come for you to deliver you. So God's ordering all of history to bring about this rescue. And so there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are only specifically fulfilled in one person, in Jesus Christ. So the promise here, not just that we're going to hear about God or even from God, like Moses, but we personally hear God through Jesus. So Hebrews 11, 1 says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God's last and best word to you and me about everything. About life, about death, about eternity, about your circumstances, about what brings you joy, about your griefs, about all those things. Because he didn't just speak the word like Moses did. He is the word of God. The word of God, he became flesh, 
among us, we hear what he is saying. Another promise was made by Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, there's coming a day when no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So not just know about him or even uh, know him more intimately than most, like Moses did, to see just glimpses of glory, not that. But the Bible says this, that we, the word became flesh and took up residence among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Jesus is the true and better prophet. Moses showed us one thing. There's intimacy. You can hear God. But Jesus comes and says, you can hear me and see me. You can encounter me. So he comes by fulfilling all of God's promises, but he also blots out sin and forgives us. Again, back in verse 18, he says, the prophet said that, uh, that, that he's going to suffer. And then verse 19 says, we're going to blot out sins. You've got to put those two things together. What does that mean? Well, uh, sin is rebellion against God as king. And it marks all of us. Everybody that's a human being, we are all guilty of sin. We all have negative marks on our moral record. We have things that don't match the, the king's word or his heart or his, or his ways. Uh, so I, like, the, like the prophet uh, Isaiah said, he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Our way, not his way. Our way, this way. This will bring me pleasure. His way, this way. Our way. So there begins a separation further and further along the way. And it comes from things that we've done, things that we've left undone. We've had acts and words and attitudes. Things that are known by everybody, things only we know what has gone on. And we have no defense for it. And we know, if we're honest, we know, if we measure our lives by God and his standard, it just says guilty, guilty, guilty. How can we deal with the moral record of our sins? We need to be forgiven. Now, let's talk about this. Because forgiven is a deeper thing than just God saying, yeah, no problem. It's all good. We're good. No problem. No, no. Do, do you remember, remember they put a sign over Jesus' head on the cross? And the sign Pilate had written that said, King of the Jews. Why did they do that? They did that because that's where they hang the charges against the criminals who were being executed. So if we're rebelling against the king, we've been given a death sentence, and we have charges against us, all those marks on our moral record. What happens there? Look what the Bible says in Colossians 2. Christ blotted out, erased, canceled, destroyed, utterly wiped out the handwritten record of charges, the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments that always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. Jesus hangs on the cross as my substitute, as your substitute. 
He is taking our sin penalty and we walk away free and alive, no longer guilty or condemned. It's what God's been saying all along. you got to trust me alone and then you live. Then you live because he will forgive. But when he forgives us even more, it says he will bring, he will give us spiritual refreshing. Verse 20 talks about times of refreshing. When we experience this forgiveness, sin no longer blocks our relationship with God. So it makes a significant relationship on how, how we relate to God. Because if we know we're sinning and we're outside of a relationship with God, we're separated. Now guilt causes us to want to hide. That's what guilt and shame do. If I'm guilty, I want to hide. I don't want to be around anybody who knows what's going on. And, or I, I feel an enormous burden to try uh, that I failed. So I got to try to make up for it. I try to work harder, work harder even for God. That's spiritually exhausting. Try to keep on doing better and doing better and doing better. So God will maybe light me in some way. But when we're forgiven, we're no longer like this. We're forgiven. It brings the relationship back together. It reconciles it back together so there's a refreshing and we can just breathe. <laughs> the word literally is the idea of the feel of a cooling breeze when you're working outside on a warm day. Now that's like working in the yard, it's really hot and you just kind of feel a breeze and you kind of stand up and you turn your face toward the breeze just for a second. You know that feeling? So if I know that I've been forgiven by the king, what happens? It changes. I can now simply enjoy God. I want to run away from him. I'm energized by an awareness of his presence and his truth because I'm not in opposition to his truth of his love because now my life is matching his design. And the refreshing comes and we hear Jesus who says this, I have spoken these things that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. If anyone thirsts, have any longing at all, come to me and drink. Because I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Come to me, he says. All you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Oh, this is the way to live. Trust me alone, he says, and your whole life will be transformed by my presence. But it's not his life now. It presses ahead to life in the future and in eternity for our souls because he also accomplishes this and he spares us from God's judgment. Look again what Moses said. There's one coming like me who will be a spokesman for God. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Verse 23, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
To ignore God's message is to invite destruction to your life. Now, God's not looking to zap us with lightning bolts. It's not the way this works. But he created life, which means he has the authority to define the way humanity is to operate. And when that is ignored, when that is rejected, we forfeit the right to the life he gave us. And a holy God pronounces just judgment on rebels, the sentence of death under the wrath of God. And just like the wrath and death stalked the streets of Egypt that night, as we face his judgment, that's what we're facing. How can we possibly escape? Well, we need a spotless lamb. And Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the one without blemish or spot. We need blood that blocks divine wrath. Jesus died on a bloody cross, blood from the flogging, from the thorny crown, from the nails in his hands and his feet, from the spear that pierced his side. Why so much blood? The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The death penalty for opposing God must be paid. It will be paid. There is no avoiding it, either paid by us or paid by a substitute. And again, the prophet Isaiah says, but he, talking about Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You hear the exchange back and forth there. Why would he do that? Because he loves us with an everlasting love. And God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still rebelling and run away, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, declared not guilty, forgiven by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Would you understand? The only escape from God's wrath is through what Christ has done Like Israel, death is coming for us all. The statistics are one out of one. Everybody dies and then comes a judgment. Death is coming for us all, but salvation is available under the blood. We trust who Christ is and what Christ has done. We come under the blood of Christ. He is our Passover lamb. He is sacrificed so that death passes over us passes over us so that we walk away alive and free. He says, please trust me so you'll live now and you will live forever. And in that life, even more he accomplishes. He assures us of a joyful restoration. People of Israel had the promised land they were looking forward to. Here's what it says, verse 21, it says, This Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things comes to place. This same Jesus who died rose from the dead, and he will return to reign and set all things the way God intended. Because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where all that is broken will be restored. 
And there will be no sickness there because all sickness will be healed and will be whole. And all injustice will be made right. And all that's dark will be swallowed up in light. And all hatred will be replaced by love. And all that is death will give way to life. And all the tears, all the tears will be wiped away. And we will laugh the laughter that only the redeemed can laugh. Because we know the whole story. Why is that possible? Because we will live awash in the atmosphere of the unfiltered glory and truth and beauty and goodness and love of King Jesus. It's what the true and better prophet promised and he never lies. Trust me and live now forever, he says. So, you have now heard God's one message from God's spokesman, his ultimate prophet, Christ. One question that remains is, what will you do with it? We have only two possible responses to God's one message. Every person must respond Every person on earth, every person here in this place this morning will respond. There is no neutrality here. Abstaining is not an option. Now, what I'm asking how you respond to his message, here, message, here's what I'm not asking. I'm not asking about your religion. I'm not asking about your church membership. I'm asking if you like Jesus. I'm not asking if you agree with the Judeo-Christian view of government and of life on earth. I'm not asking if you've had spiritual experiences. I'm not asking if you walked the aisle, prayed a prayer, raised your hand, signed a card. I'm not asking if you went to youth camp and on Thursday night got chills. I'm not asking you if you cry when there's spiritual songs. I'm asking you, what have you done with the message of the king where he says, trust me alone and live? There are only two options. You can choose to rebel. You can you just blow it off. And exactly what Moses said is going to happen. The only possibility for your future is that you will face judgment and wrath on your own merit by yourself alone before the king. And you will not survive that. You will be separated from God for an eternity of pain and regret. And would you listen to me, please? You don't know when that moment's going to come. You don't know how much time you have. You can reject it and rebel, but just know that ensures death and separation from him forever. Or you can choose to repent Listen to his message. Trust me alone and live and adjust your life to it. This entire paragraph is in the parentheses of repentance. Verse 19, he says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins can be blotted out. Verse 26, he comes back and says, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. How? I turn away from my sin. I'm going this way. I'm going to turn away from my sin. Sin is putting me at the center. It's putting me at the center of everything and of life. I'm turning away from that and turning to Christ. 
and of who he is and what he's done turning to Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection for you as your only possibility for your soul. Listen, he says, if anyone would call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. There's not a magic prayer, a certain thing you have to say a certain way. It is your heart talking to your God and saying, God, I'm so sorry. I've sinned. I've built life around me and my pleasure and what I want. I'm turning away from that. I'm turning to Christ and I'm going to put Jesus at the center of my life now and my hope for eternity. And if you'll do that, then you can join with the confession of one of the great confessions in Christian history, which begins by asking this question, what's my only comfort? in life and death, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I've responded to his message. He invited me to come, trust me, and live. It's your choice. And eternity and life are in the balance. Let's bow our heads and pray. So the next few moments as we worship together, you will have the opportunity to respond to what the Lord is calling this day. Have prayer and courage as we'll be here at the front. You can come to talk to one of us or come and just kneel here and talk to God and tell him that you want his life. So Lord, do your work in these moments. Holy Spirit, you're the one who does this. Would you help us to respond to what you're prompting right now because it really matters. It's the only thing that matters. We're grateful that you'll speak and will respond in Jesus' name.